an accurate understanding, an accurate view of who Jesus is, is revealed in Scripture. And that revelation is essential for our salvation. Um, to deny or distort the revelation of Scripture is to deny the very Word of God and is to reject His authority. Apart from this revelation that we see in the Word of God about who Jesus is, uh, apart from this, we will create a Jesus of our own imagination, one that fits what we think He ought to be like rather than what God has declared about who He is and what He's done. And so to protect us, I think, from our vain imaginations, God has given us the gospel. He's given us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to show us who he says Jesus is. In, in a day like we live in today, in a day of doctrinal ambiguity, we need clarity. We need clarity about who Jesus is and what he has done. You understand this. You're saved by what he did, not what you do, right? You're saved by the very fact that God himself, God of very God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, entered into this world to become like us, yet without sin. To live our life righteously, perfectly, in complete obedience to the law that Nate spoke of earlier, because we have fallen short of that law continually. That same Jesus, God the Son, went to a cross to die the death that every sinner deserves. And the wrath of a holy and righteous God, His Father, was poured out upon Him in our place. And that same Jesus died. And that same Jesus was buried. And that same Jesus rose again on the third day. And that same Jesus ascended into glory. And He sits at the right hand of authority as God the Son, our Savior, the God-man. That's the Jesus we see in Scripture. That's the Jesus we need to love and adore. That's the Jesus we need to understand biblically. So today, we're going to begin where I left off in Mark last week. We're going to begin in Mark 1.1, introducing doctrine, Christology. And yes, I am going to be repeating myself somewhat for those of you who weren't here last week. And I want to do that to give you the glimpse of who Jesus is according to Mark. But I also want to do that to remind those who were here that this is the one doctrine that matters above all doctrine. He is the subject of this book from Genesis to Revelation. And Mark tells us that he starts out the book declaring the most important news of all. He tells us who Jesus is. He states the good news in verse 1. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he gives us some foundational news here. He tells us there's good news. And he tells us who it's about. He tells us it's about, it's about Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is God the Son. That's the gospel. And it's he that the rest of this book, this gospel, is focused upon. And so for us to understand the continuing revelation we see in Mark's gospel, we have to understand who he is, who Jesus Christ is, according to to the Word of God. And this is amazing news that Mark gives us here. And I don't want to skim over one word, and I don't want to skim over one doctrinal precept that's here either. In verse 1, we see the word gospel. That's a word we use a lot. It's a word we don't often think about, though. The word gospel means good news. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, or the evangel. This word referred to the good news that a herald would bring to a city in this Roman time period. This was a very common Roman word. It was a colloquial word. It was a word that they used to just make announcements of good tidings, good news. And one of the ways they did that was they would send someone out ahead to declare the good news of whatever had just occurred. We often see this in history when a king would have a son. And the herald would run into the city saying, good news, good news. The king has had a son. He has arrived. And that's what this gospel is saying to us. Good news, good news. The king has a son and he has arrived. Matter of fact, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is Jesus Christ. He tells us that the gospel is about Jesus. Who Jesus is matters. You cannot be ambiguous about Jesus. You must be clear and upfront because there is no other name 
under heaven by which a man must be saved, but by the name of Jesus and what that means and who he is. Mark 1.1 goes on to say that the gospel is not only about him, it tells us his name. It tells us that God's son's name is Jesus, and that's significant also. Jesus' name means Savior. Savior. Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Yeshua, Joshua. Joshua. The meaning of his name is Yahweh is salvation, or God is salvation. So Jesus' name means God is salvation. His name is significant. He came to bring salvation to us in the flesh. Jesus would be like Joshua of the Old Testament. He would take the children of God out of the wilderness of sin and lead them into the promised land. The law couldn't do that, but Joshua did. Jesus did that. He led us from sin into paradise by going ahead of us. He came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to live in perfect obedience to God's law as our spiritual savior. He came to bring us the good news that we can't save us, but he can. And he came to do that. His very name means salvation. Mark also tells us in verse 1 that Jesus was given a special title. And you can see that there. We see the title. We don't often think about this as a title. Most people think about this as his last name, unfortunately. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. He was the anointed one from God. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term that means Messiah, the anointed one, the anointed one from God. Kings and priests and prophets were anointed to authenticate their ability to perform their office. And Jesus is all three. He was the one who was anointed by God himself to be our prophet, priest, and king. The Jews believed that the Messiah would come into this world and deliver Israel. They had lost sight of the reality of a man Messiah. They actually began to think that the actual nation could be the the redeeming Messiah. And, and when you come to the Gospels at this time period, when John the Baptist is crying about a Messiah to come, about the Lamb that would come to set Israel straight, this would open their eyes to see that this Messiah was going to be a man. He was coming. And he would deliver Israel. And he would bring peace. He would fulfill God's eternal plan. They believed that would be the case with the true Messiah. The nation couldn't accomplish that, but this Jesus would. Look what Isaiah 11 says. Go with me to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 and verse 1 through 9. This is the view they had of the Messiah, and it's a proper view. This is what the true Messiah would do, would accomplish. Now, we know that when this Messiah, Jesus, when he came into the world, he accomplished part of his mission. And he is coming again to bring it to completion in the future. They didn't understand this this gap. They didn't understand there would be a gap between these two fulfillments of the Messiah's work. But yet, in that gap, we're redeemed. In that gap, the Gentiles are brought in. And that's good news. Here's their view of the Messiah. And this is exactly the prophecy that spoke about Jesus. Because He is who is described here in the very first verse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's speaking of Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's certainly speaking of Jesus. We even saw that happen at his baptism where the Spirit... Ascend or descends upon him and remains upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he see, his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with, his bre- with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And the little child shall lead them. 
The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the Messiah spoken of here. This is the Messiah that would come. This is the Messiah that will complete God's eternal plan one day. He came in might in this first half of this prophecy. We saw Jesus come into the world and fulfill these things. The latter half that we see here will yet be to come. But he did complete this. He is coming to complete the rest. And he came personally. He is the Messiah that is spoken of in the Gospel of Mark. Go back with me to Mark chapter 1. The good news in Mark begins by declaring that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that the Jews had longed for, looked to, hoped in. And he would come and set things right. And, And the way he could set things right, according to the Gospel of Mark, is he comes not just with this great Uh, political leadership, he comes with this great supernatural power. The Messiah that Mark talks about is a powerful Messiah. According to what it says in the first verse, we saw this last week, Jesus is not only a Savior, He's not only the Messiah, He's also the Son of God. He's deity. He's God. He has all authority, all power, all might, all strength. And what Mark does to back up his claim in verse 1 is he declares an Old Testament prophecy, two of them actually, in verses 2 and 3. Now when you read this text, I know it's a little confusing because it says that Isaiah said this, the prophet. And there's actually two different prophets being quoted here, Malachi and Isaiah. And Isaiah is even quoting out of Exodus. The point is Isaiah had the preeminence. So his name shows up first. It's not a contradiction. There's nothing in error here. It's just the the form of writing they would use that he was the greater prophet, so his name goes first. But it says, as it is written in Isaiah, notice this. This is a bold statement because what he's going to do in these two verses, he's going to give us a New Testament revelation of the Old Testament prophecies. And the revelation is that the one that was spoken of in the Old Testament is none other than Jesus. Yet in the Old Testament, it's speaking of Yahweh, God. Behold, I, and I there represents God, Jehovah, Yahweh. Behold, I send my messenger. God says, I am going to send my messenger. And this would be John the Baptist. He says, behold, I send my messenger before your face. Well, in the Malachi passage, which is Malachi 3.1, it says, I will send my messenger before me. Wait a minute. Me? Jehovah? And then here it says, I'm going to send my messenger before your face. Speaking of verse 1, Jesus Christ. This messenger, it says, will prepare your way, Christ's way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's John the Baptist. He will cry this, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make his path straight. And so what Mark does is he gives us these two Old Testament prophecies saying, the one that was spoken of in these prophecies, he has come. Messiah is come. And guess what? He is Yahweh, God the Son. Many in evangelicalism don't even know the simple and essential truths that Mark's talking about right here. They don't even understand who Jesus is. I, I've, I could almost guarantee you, if you took a survey of modern evangelicalism and you asked them who Jesus is, most could not tell you that he was deity, nor would they. And and we shouldn't be surprised if they don't know who Jesus is, that we would see them living in complete carnality. If you have a wrong Jesus and you don't know that he is fully God, fully man, full of authority, might and power and holiness and full of grace and mercy and truth. Why would you serve him in obedience? Why would you turn from your sin and trust in him? This, This false idea of a carnal Christian, this carnal Christian idea that was popularized in the 70s. There's no such thing in Scripture. We all have carnal moments. 
But those moments are shaken when they see the glory of the one who died for our sins. We can't dwell on our sin. We hate our sin because of the greatness of our Savior. Knowing who Jesus is, is essential here. Why do we think we see so many, what I believe, are false conversions? They haven't even been told who they are to turn to from sin and turn to who? Who? Who am I turning to? Well, he was a good man. He was a prophet, I think. He was a good example. Well, there is no saving grace in turning to a good man or a prophet. There's only saving grace by turning to God's salvation in Christ. Salvation is not about us. It's not about us. Our salvation is about Him so that we will see His glory. He loves us so that we can see Him. That's how He shows us His love. He loves us so much that He wants to show us how glorious He is. It's not that we're lovely. He is. But He's not unless you know Him biblically. He's not a glorious Savior that's worth turning from sin to turn to Him unless you know who He is and what He has done. Look at Romans. Look at Romans 10. This is an often quoted passage when we talk about evangelism and we're sharing the gospel with people and people have turned this little phrase into a mantra and they don't even think about what it actually means. They don't even know that the one that they're supposedly calling upon for salvation is the one and only one who can grant it. Because he is sovereign. He is the God of all creation. He's the God of our salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tell us that the one we trust in and the one we call upon for salvation is Lord. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is God, that's what it's saying. Adonai. The Old Testament phrase for the sovereign ruler. That's what this means. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the sovereign ruler and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Absolutely. Absolutely. For with the heart one believes and is justified or declared righteous. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. And if your heart has been informed by who it is that came into this earth to take your place, that it was not just a mere man, not an example, but the God-man who did what we could never do. He lived our life for us in obedience, and he was without sin and perfect in everything he did. And he is the Lord God Almighty. You will confess gladly that he is your Savior. But you must know who this is. This means there is no taking Jesus as my Savior and then living like hell. There is no excusing sin. There is taking Jesus and recognizing Him for who He's declared to be and who He's always been and who He's always going to be and submitting to Him in complete obedience. It's not easy. It's not easy. We talk about grace and we try to make grace cheap sometimes. It cost Jesus, the God-man, his entire life to redeem you so you could see his glory. And believing in this Jesus requires grace. It's not the kind of grace that's just take him as your buddy, get you out of hell. But it's take him and believe upon him and trust him and obey him for the rest of your life. And you will see him and glorify him eternally as a result. It's not anything you do. It's what he did. He is the God of salvation. But again, many people don't even know that. Many church people don't even understand that Jesus himself claimed to be God. Did you know that? Jesus claimed to be God. People say, well, I don't know where that's at in Scripture. Well, we're going to look at some of those. His very claim to be God is what caused the Pharisees to want to stone him to death. Go with me to John five eighteen. The Pharisees... Unlike many today, they understood the hermeneutical principle going on here. They understood context. They understood the words that Jesus used because they testified immediately to what he said and how they responded to it is a tell-all that they understood exactly what he meant here. In 5.18, it says, 
This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why did, why did the Jews want to kill Jesus? That's what this verse will tell us. Why did, why did the Jews? Think about it. Jesus is going around doing great things. He's healing people. He's raising the dead. He's forgiving sinners. And they want to kill him. That's a strange thing, isn't it? Well, here's why. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making him equal with God. That's exactly what that means. To call God his father and to say that what he does and the father does are equal, he is saying that he and the father are equals. It would be a claim to deity. Look what verse 19 says. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. But whatever the father does, the son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel for this is important. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. He is saying that the Father is the one who has authority to raise the dead, and so do I. That's that's a statement of saying I'm equal. The Father judges no one. Now, listen to this. This This is not necessarily a statement of equality. This is actually a statement of priorities that the Son has that the Father doesn't have. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as need to circle that just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. If you do do not honor Jesus as co-equal God, the son, if you do not honor him as God, the son, you do not honor the father. The Jews understood this. They said he's making himself out to be God, equal with God. Look over in chapter 10 of John's gospel. John 10, 28. Again, this is an astounding statement. Let me just think for a minute here. Can you say what Jesus says in verse 28? No man, no mere man can say this. I give them eternal life. When was the last time you did that? I mean, wouldn't you want to do that for your children if you could? You can't. Only God can do this. But Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one unit. It's what this word means. It comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4. Yahed, one composite unit, one essence, one purpose they have. I and the Father have one purpose. We're one in essence in that sense. The Jews picked up the stones again to stone him. Now, wait a minute. You have to ask yourself the question. Has he done anything wrong? He's, he's telling them that he's giving eternal life to people. And yet they want to kill him again. The Jews picked up stones and began to stone him. To begin to stone him. Um, Jesus answered them. I've shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him. It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. They were right. They were right. He was saying, I am God. He was declaring that that's why they want to stone him to death. The Jews understood this. Woe to us as evangelicals if we don't understand this. And, you know, I I was thinking about some some popular sermons that I hear and, and that I've listened to over the last few years. Very few have to do with doctrine. A lot have to do with psychotherapy. A lot have to do with self and self esteem. Very few have to do with Jesus. And who he is and what he's done. Very few have to do with repentance. And it's interesting that the gospel of Mark starts with both. I think that we should start there too. We need to know who Jesus is. John 19 tells us that because of his claim to be deity, he was killed. Jesus was crucified by the Jews because they understood he claimed to be God. 
John 19, 7. Back to verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because... Because... He has made himself the son of God. They believed because he declared to be himself God, the son or the son of God, that he deserved to be put to death because they denied the fact that this could actually happen, that the Messiah would be God himself entered into this world to take their place. And if that was the case, they would need to submit to him completely. And they were unwilling to do so. And that's really still true today. If you claim that you're a Christian and you claim that you belong to Jesus, you belong to his authority. He is Lord. He is your master. You're not your own any longer. You belong to him. And we need to understand that as as Christians. The revelation that's given in Scripture about who Jesus is has massive implications upon our life. He's not just our Savior. He's our Lord and Master. He doesn't just care about us personally, and he does care personally, but that's not all. He commands our destiny. He commands our life. We are submitted to Him in complete obedience. Even though we fall short, we still look to Him as our Savior. Yet He picks us up and says, complete the work that I've called you into. We continue to follow Him. You know, the Gospel of Mark is all about following Jesus. Men are confronted with Jesus. Jesus comes to them and they immediately drop everything and follow Him. That's not just a cute gospel story. That's the way it should be today. Are you following him? Are you submitted to him? Are you willingly giving your life up for him? You'll lose nothing. You'll lose nothing in this life. You'll gain everything, though. We need to know this. We need to know who he is and what he's done. Or we have no gospel message. So, on your paper, on your outlines, you can look there and see that we have the prophetic message of the good news that's found in the Old Testament. And we have the specific message of the good news that's found in the New Testament. I want to look at a few of these and you can probably keep up there on your handouts because that's why I gave them out with all the verses today so that you would see them yourself. The first thing we want to look at will be the prophetic message of the good news that's declared in the Old Testament. The the Old Testament prophecies tell us specifically that God himself would come into this world to rescue sinners. God is the rescuer of sinners. God is the only Savior. He is the only Redeemer, according to Scripture. The Old Testament prophets understood this. The Old Testament people of God understood that it would be God that they must trust in. When you see the people looking at the sacrifices, they're not thinking they're saved by doing sacrifices. They're looking at God who is going to provide the ultimate sacrifice. The sacrifices were only pointing to Jesus, but they trusted in the God who provides by faith. They were saved in the Old Testament because they knew that God alone could save a wretch like me and you. Isaiah 43, turn there with me. Isaiah 43, 10 declares that God alone is the Savior of sinners. Isaiah 43, 10 through 13 You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Notice what God says to Israel here. I've chosen you that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am Adonai. I am Jehovah. I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. There is only one Savior. There is only one Lord. And God says that I am He. There is no other. By the way, verse 10 is a great refutation of the Jehovah's Witness doctrine. That Jesus was a created little God. No, it says, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is God, God the Son, second person of the Trinity. And He is our Savior as well. So you have to do a little thinking when you do your Bible study. 
You have to think, if the Old Testament prophecies tell us that there is only one Savior, there is only one Lord, and then the New Testament comes along and tells us Jesus is both, what does that mean about Jesus? He is God. He is deity. The Old Testament prophesied that God would save His people. His people from their sins. And the New Testament also reveals the same thing about Jesus. Look with me at Luke. Luke 2. Luke two eleven, And again, this morning you're getting a study that I hope will equip you and just strengthen your faith and understanding about who it is that we serve, who it is that saved us. The, the astounding part of this, aside from theological exercise here, the astounding part is... God of very God entered into this world to die in your place so that you would know what he is like and that you would serve him, not just now, but for eternity. We'll have a full revelation in eternity. There won't be this, this as looking through a glass dimly. Even now we struggle, but we've been given this revelation in Scripture we must cling to. Look what it says in 2.11. It says here that Jesus is the Savior which the Old Testament said there's only one Savior, it's God. Here it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, notice this, a Savior. And then we see the other titles. Who is Messiah? Who is the Lord? Savior, Christ, Lord. All three in that one sentence. Jesus is the Savior of men. Jesus is the God-man who entered into this world to save his people from their sin. Look what Matthew 1.21 says. We know for sure who Luke's talking about because Matthew names him. We see the other word that's used in Mark's gospel here. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, Savior. Yahweh saves. For he will save his people from their sins. It's pretty specific, by the way, is it not? That's some good news stuff in that verse. He, God, a very God, God the Son, will enter into the world to save specifically the ones that God the Father had given to him. He came to save his people completely from their sins. He came to accomplish redemption for all those that the Father had given to him. We see in Scripture that according to Old Testament and New Testament, that salvation comes from God. Salvation is of God, of God alone. It's by grace alone, through faith in God alone, to His glorious name alone that we are saved. And that message is specified in the New Testament. That's the second point we'll look at. The specific message of our salvation or of the good news is revealed, not just prophesied, but revealed, uncovered in the New Testament. What was prophesied now, in the New Testament, is specified. The New Testament specifies that it is God the Son who took on flesh to redeem us, to save us, to rescue us from our sin. God the Son becomes our substitutionary Savior, personally. Hebrews 1 declares this. And this is just a, a, an amazing passage, again of the immense grace of God, that this is the way He chose to redeem His people so they would see how glorious He is. Our salvation is about that. We're saved to see how glorious God is. And we'll see it for eternity. And it will never grow old. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Jesus is the Creator. He's the one who is creating the world. Verse 3, He, Jesus, this is an amazing verse, He is the radiance of the glory of God, <laughs> the exact imprint of His nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making perfection for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. His name, 
Jesus, the Savior of sinners, Yahweh saves, Lord of all. That Jesus, it says here, is the exact imprint of God the Father's nature. He is the character of God fleshed out, if you will. That's what this word means. He is the exact reproduction of God's nature. And only God himself can do that. Only God can reflect himself perfectly or he would be an idol. We are called to bow down and worship this Jesus because he is the exact imprint of God in the flesh so we can see him. The New Testament specifies that the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, he added to his deity humanity. He didn't lose anything when he became man. We need to understand that. He lost nothing. It was divine addition, not subtraction. Turn with me to Philippians 2 to see that. In Philippians 2, we see something astounding, though, in his humility, his bringing on humanity onto himself, his taking upon himself flesh. He does this to show us how glorious God's grace is. But he does this at a costly price. He experienced pain in the flesh to manifest God's glorious grace towards sinners. Do you understand that? Why do we suffer? Why do we suffer as human beings? Because we were born in sin and we willfully enjoy sinning all of our days until God saves us. Then we hate our sin, that we struggle with it. But we still suffer and suffer pain and anguish. And it's because of the sin that dwells in us. It's the sin of this world. It's the curse God has placed on this earth. The one who entered into this world who deserved to never feel pain was Jesus. Born without sin, lived without sin, died without his own sin. But he died and felt pain because of our sin. He experienced agony, crucifixion because of you and me. The God man who had every right to demand praise and adoration. This Jesus wraps himself in flesh and submits himself to human authorities so they can kill him to save us from our sins. God is punishing Jesus. We understand this. God is punishing his son in our place. Every sin we've committed against God deserves eternal judgment. And that judgment fell upon Jesus in our place. So he would suffer and he would have the wrath of God fall upon him so that God's justice would be meted out. God would be just and he would be gracious towards sinners. He would justify his law's demand. And then he would give to us what we couldn't earn. He would give to us the righteousness that belonged to his son. Philippians 2 talks about how he did this. 2, five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Speaking of Jesus in verse 6, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, because of this, God, it says, because of Christ's willing humility, willing sacrifice, atoning death, substitutionary atonement, because of this, verse 9 says, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus the Messiah is Adonai. To the glory of God the Father. It's to the glory of God the Father that Jesus comes into the world to become our Savior. It is the glory of God that comes down into this earth and manifests himself, wraps himself in humility to die in our place so that God would be praised for our salvation. And every knee will bow one day before this Adonai. Hitler, Hussein, our neighbors, ourselves, everyone will bow and confess that this Jesus is Adonai. He is the Savior of sinners. 
And by the way, Isaiah here is being quoted by the Apostle Paul, and it says that at the name of God, every knee would bow in Isaiah's passage. And it is God who came down to become our Savior here. And we, we are to praise Him in light of that. That is the good news that Mark's talking about. Good news, apart from defining Jesus, is not so good news. But when you know who He is, and you know what God demands, this is good news. God demands perfect obedience out of us. We all fall short. Jesus never fell short. He overcame sin in our place because He became the perfect substitute. Yet He was without sin because He was fully God and holy. And so He overcame and He imputed to us His righteousness. He didn't just take away sin. He gave us a positive standing before God. We could never earn on our own. And for that, Jesus should be praised. What I want you to understand this morning is this. Jesus is God. Got that? He's God the Son. And as God the Son, the Theanthropos, we would call Him now, He is God who took on flesh. He is the God-man. He is the forever God-man. He has a body. That body is in heaven. That body is coming back. That Jesus, when He was on earth, He was praised and adored. That Jesus should be praised and adored now by us and in eternity, forever. That's the message that we see revealed in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we know that only God can be worshipped. Even Jesus makes this clear. Look with me at Matthew 4.10. Matthew 4.10. Jesus himself, when he is being tempted by the devil, he quotes God's word back to Satan. And he says a really clear statement about worshipping or adoring anyone other than God. He says it's a sin. In 4, in verse 10, it says this. Then Jesus said... To him, to Satan, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God, and him only shall you serve. And what's amazing to me is throughout the New Testament, Jesus is saying all the time, serve me, obey me, follow me, worship me. Jesus is worshiped. He accepts worship and adoration and praise and even petitions for prayer. Jesus does this because he is God. It is not a sin for him. He is saying, if you've worshipped anyone else or anything else other than the Lord your God, you're a sinner. You've offended God. But then all through the New Testament, he's saying, worship me, come to me, follow me. Now think about this. How do you worship God this morning? Do you willfully, intentionally adore Jesus? Do you declare Jesus' worth and glory? Do you call on Him in times of need? Do you pray to Him? Think about how you worship Jesus. And think about the fact that maybe you don't. Maybe you have neglected God in your worship. God the Son. You know, there are great illustrations of prayers in the New Testament. And they're <laughs> primarily Trinitarian prayers. And you see all three persons of the Trinity being spoken to or addressed but I think that we need to understand something. Jesus himself wants us to worship him. He has revealed this whole book about himself so we would adore him. He is the subject of every page, every quote, every line, every letter is pointing to him. Because he, he is the, the one that God sent to show us God's very nature. He came into this earth to declare the glory of God perfectly. And God wants us to adore Him properly. In the New Testament, Jesus Himself accepts and encourages men to worship Him. Look with me in Matthew 14. Matthew 14, 23. We see Him accepting worship because He's fully God. 14, 23. And after He had dismissed the crowd, He went up, Jesus speaking, speaking of Jesus, He went up on the mountain by Himself to pray, when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, okay, that's just absolutely astounding first and foremost. He's exercising his divine right over nature and walking on water. Okay, that's enough to testify to his deity. 
He is doing what only God could do there, but it goes further. Verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began or beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, properly so, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This word worshipped here is very important. Only God can be worshipped by men. Those in the boat, it says, bowed low in adoration. That's what this Greek word means here for worship. They bowed and adored him. They were amazed by him. They were worshipping him and declaring, you are the son of God. And for the Hebrew person to say, Jesus is the son of God. He was saying he is equal with God. This is big. This is huge. And that's what he's declaring here when he's receiving worship. Now look in Matthew 28, 28, 1. Again, here we see Jesus being worshipped. I mean, if there were no text in the New Testament at all, you know, we could maybe make an argument for maybe there was a question of his deity. But yet here, over and over again, we see him commanding and doing things that only God can do and accepting things that only God deserves. 28.1, it says, after the resurrection happens, here's what happens here in verse 1 through 9. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and, they, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold... Jesus met them and said, wow, Greetings! And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. The resurrected God-man. He says, Greetings! And the immediate response is, God, you are worthy. You are great. You are mighty. I mean, think about that. Do we, do we respond like that ourselves? When you open up the, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, you're hearing Jesus say, Greeting, here I am. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We should adore Him. We should bow low. We should praise Him. Jesus is accepting worship here because He is worthy of praise, because He is God the Son. Now, another really compelling text, John 20. John 20. John 20 clears all the ambiguity up. There is no doubting John 20. The only way to doubt John 20 is to blaspheme. And, and that's what the Jehovah's Witness do here. But when we look at this text, what I want you to see is it is clear that Jesus does not rebuke Thomas. Jesus does not correct Thomas for doing something sinful here. He accepts Thomas's act of adoration. Because Jesus in this text is declared to be the Lord God. But it says... In verse 26. Eight days later, this is after the resurrection also. Eight days later, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my sides. and Put, your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, Thomas worshipped him. This is what Thomas is doing, okay? Here's what he said. My 
Adonai and my Theos. My Lord and my God, my Adonai, my sovereign ruler and my Yahweh, my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas cried out in worship when he saw Jesus. And he made a declaration that I think was even greater than Peter's when Peter said, you are the Messiah. He gives us the fuller revelation. The Messiah was the Lord. The Lord God came and he bore on his side and in his hands the penalty of our sin. You notice this, right? The resurrected Jesus who is glorified, he is magnificent. He's still bearing the marks of our sin. And in heaven, we will not bear any marks of our sin. But the forever God man will be there as a reminder that that's why we're here. He took our place. God of very God entered into this existence for us to forgive our sins and to receive us to himself. Jesus does that. Jesus can accept worship and Jesus can forgive sin. And only God can do those two things. Look with me quickly in Luke to see that. Jesus himself grants forgiveness to sinners. Now, you have to think a little bit here because sometimes people read these texts and they don't think through these. But let me give you an example of something. If, if one of you offends me, one of you hurts me, one of you does something bad to me, and you see me and I see you and we approach one another and, and I say, brother or sister... Because you have sinned against me, I want to forgive you. I want to exercise grace toward you. Though you have hurt me, though you have been an offender of my heart, I, because you offended me directly, I can forgive you and I will. I choose to do so. But what I can't do is if one of you come to me and say, I've sinned against God, I've offended God, I have trespassed against God's law. I can't say to you, you're forgiven. I forgive you. Your sins are no more. Because you didn't sin against me. You've sinned against a holy and righteous God. And only God can forgive you of that sin. And Jesus does that here. Jesus looks at a woman who was a prostitute. And he forgives her the sins that she's committed against God. The only way he could do that is because... Those sins were against him because Jesus is God, the son. Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed him with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, interestingly enough, it's his own thought, yet Jesus knows what he's thinking. He's omniscient. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he went on to give him a parable. And then in verse 44, it says this. Then turning toward this woman, to the woman, Jesus said to Simon, You see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she, she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? 
Interestingly enough, the woman doesn't seek forgiveness. The woman doesn't say a repeat after me prayer for forgiveness. Jesus exercises grace to the sinner, sees the depth of her sin, and he forgives her. He forgives her because her sins were against him. This is the point here. I can't forgive another sinner's offenses against God. You can't either. But Jesus can because those offenses are against him. Only God can forgive sins. Look what Micah says. Micah. Close to Nahum. Between Nahum and Jonah. I'll read it to you. Just listen. Here in the Old Testament, we see that it is God alone who can forgive sinners. In Micah 7, 18-19, it says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever, because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I was thinking about that passage. And it says a lot. First, it declares only God can forgive sin. But it also hints at how God would forgive our sins. He would tread our iniquities underfoot. He did that. He did that by treading his son underfoot on the cross. Our sin, our sin debt was laid upon him, upon Jesus. And he was crushed for our iniquities. Our chastisement fell on him. And he, all the while, was crying out for us to see his glory. That's why he died. That's why God entered into this world, is to show us how glorious He is. And those who believe in Him will see it for eternity. It will never fade. Our life fades. Our view of Jesus will fade from time to time because we are sinners trapped in this flesh. Indwelling sin is constantly dragging us away from the glorious revelation of Christ. But when you get a glimpse of who this is that saved you, you will want to adore Him. You will be responding to Him in amazement. That's the point of knowing about who Jesus is. That's what it means to us as Christians. We have good news. God has revealed himself to us and taken our place. Look with me real quickly at Romans. Romans 8.31. Here's some good news that's revealed in Scripture about Jesus becoming our salvation and securing us. And this news, by the way, here never changes. Once it's been declared about you, once God himself has declared it and God the Son has accomplished it, it will never change. It is finished. It is sealed. God the Holy Spirit has secured it. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now listen, think about that in terms of the triune God, but think also in terms of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. How do you know if God was for you? He entered into this earth for you. If he is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand. That's actually the place of authority. The right hand of God's authority. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Just think about this. If God loved you and God sent His Son to die for you and Jesus is God the Son and He took your place, He paid your penalty, His love abides on you. What can sever that? Is anyone stronger than God? Anyone greater than God? Are you greater than God? No, not even you can sever this love. 
shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. It's not because we're lovely. Nothing will sever this. Nothing will change this because God chose to reveal His glory through this. And God will not let His glory be robbed from Himself. And if we lose our salvation or if anything would take us from our salvation, God would have not accomplished perfect and complete glorifying salvation. And he has accomplished that. And it demands a reaction. It demands a response from us. It's not a small matter to understand who it is who died for you and what he did to accomplish it. It, This good news that we've been given in, in Mark and throughout the gospel, it demands a response, a response of repentance of our sinful behavior. Turning away from sinful behavior. Turning away from that and trusting in the lordship of Jesus. His rulership. Turning away from doing what you want in your sinful flesh. And turning in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who owns you, by the way. He paid for you with his own blood. He purchased your life, your soul, your destiny, your will, your mind, your money, your everything belongs to him. Everything we do, therefore, should bring Him praise and adoration. He is our Lord and our Master. Look what Mark 8 says. Mark 8, we'll end on this note. Mark 8, 34. Mark makes it clear that Jesus is not just our Savior. He is not just our Messiah. He is our Lord and our Master. He redeemed us personally by receiving the penalty we deserved in the flesh. And what I want you to understand when we read this text is the gospel is is to be taken seriously. This is not an easy believism. This is not a come to Jesus, he'll make you happy. This is come to Jesus, die to self, sin and Satan and follow after the Lord God who saved you in obedience and adoration and with thanksgiving. Give your life completely to the king. He gave his life to bring you here. What it says in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Knowing who Jesus is, is essential. And it will have radical implications on the way you live your life, if you believe who he is. And you believe the revelation that's in the Gospels. Notice that Jesus adds in this, if you lose your life for my sake and the revelation that's given in the good news of who I am in the Gospels, you will gain life. I want us to see that because I want us to see as we come to Mark here in the next few weeks and begin to really go in and do an exposition of the text, I want us to know that it's this Jesus that Mark is saying we must respond to. It's this Jesus who has made it clear to us in the whole counsel of God that he is the sovereign ruler and he is our master. And when we read these narratives in the gospel, they're not stories. They're an exposition of God showing us what he has done for us and calling us into Active obedience. Every one of you here, every one of us here, if you have been purchased by the blood of Christ, if you have repented of your sins and confessed your sins to God and turned in faith and trusted in Jesus' accomplished work, every one of you were chosen by God to reflect His glory 
not just in heaven, but here on earth. You are his ambassadors. You're an ambassador of the king of kings, the Lord of glory, the very one, God of very God, who came into this earth and paid your penalty. That, that, that should change us radically. That should conform us to his image progressively through sanctification. It should be a joy, but it's also a command. So take the gospel seriously. Take the subject and the content of the gospel seriously. Defend the deity of Jesus seriously. People's salvation depend upon it. And God's glory depends upon it. Let's give him praise and adoration in prayer right now. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. It is through this revelation you have given us in the gospel that we have had our eyes illuminated by you, Holy Spirit. You have shown us the depth of our sin by showing us the greatness of the sacrifice that Jesus paid to redeem us. And Lord, we can trust in your redeeming hand. We can trust in your salvation because Jesus, the fully God, fully man, Savior, entered into this world for us to accomplish what we could never do. That secures us and that gives us hope. And that also commands our soul and our life to follow after him in obedience. So, Lord, we do want to pray that as we study your word, as we think about who Jesus is, we would be amazed, we would praise him, but then we would be motivated into obedience to declare him faithfully and defend him from the heart with joy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.